Chapter 6 The Year of Opposition For an entire year, Jesus pursued his work in Galilee with incessant energy, moving among the poor crowds that sought his miraculous help, seizing every opportunity of pouring his words of grace and truth into the ears of the multitude or of the solitary concerned inquirer. In hundreds of homes to whose residents he had restored health and joy, his name must have become a household word. In thousands of minds whose depths his preaching had stirred, he must have been cherished with gratitude and love. Wider and wider rang the echoes of his fame. For a time, it seemed as if everyone in Galilee would become one of his disciples, and as if the growing movement would easily roll southward, overwhelming all opposition and covering the entire land in an enthusiasm of love for the healer and of obedience to the teacher. The twelve months had scarcely passed, though, when it became sadly evident that this was not to be. The Galilean mind turned out to be stony ground, where the seed of the kingdom quickly sprouted up, but just as quickly withered away. The change was sudden and complete, and it at once changed all the features of the life of Jesus. He remained in Galilee for six more months, but these months were very different from the first twelve. The voices that rose around him were no longer the ringing shouts of gratitude and applause, but voices of opposition, bitter and blasphemous. He was no longer to be seen moving from one crowded place to another in the heart of the country, welcomed everywhere by those who waited to experience or to see his miracles, and followed by thousands of people who were eager to hear every word of his discourses. Jesus was a fugitive, seeking the most distant and remote places, accompanied only by a handful of followers. At the end of six months, he left Galilee forever, but he did not leave as one might have previously thought he would have left. He was not carried aloft on the wave of public acknowledgement to make an easy conquest of the hearts of the people in the southern part of the country taking victorious possession of a Jerusalem unable to resist the unanimous voice of the people. He did indeed labor for six more months in the southern part of the land, in Judea and Perea, and where his miracles were seen for the first time, there were still the same signs of public enthusiasm that had greeted him in the first months of joy in Galilee. But the most that he accomplished was to add a few people to the company of his faithful disciples. From the day he left Galilee, he did indeed set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. And the six months he spent in Perea and Judea can be regarded as occupied with a slow journey there. However, the journey was begun in the full assurance, which he openly expressed to his disciples, that in the capital he was to receive no triumph over enthusiastic hearts and convinced minds, but would meet with a definite national rejection and would be killed instead of crowned. We must trace the causes and the progress of this change in the sentiment of the Galileans and in this sad turn in the career of Jesus. 
From the very beginning, the educated and influential classes had taken up an attitude of opposition to him. The more worldly sections of them, the Sadducees and Herodians, did not pay much attention to him at first. They had their own business to take care of, their wealth, their court influence, and their amusements. They did not care much about a religious movement going on among the lower class of people. The public rumor that someone professing to be the Messiah had appeared did not excite their interest, for they did not share the popular expectations on the subject. They said to one another that this was just one more pretender whom the strange ideas of the general public were sure to raise up from time to time. It was only when the movement seemed to them to be threatening to lead to a political revolt that would bring down the iron hand of the Roman masters on the country, provide the procurator an excuse for new extortions, and endanger their property and comforts, that they began to pay any attention to him. It was very different, however, with the more religious sections of the upper class, the Pharisees and the scribes. They took the deepest interest in all ecclesiastical and religious developments. A movement of a religious kind among the people excited their eager attention, for they themselves desired popular influence. A new voice with the ring of prophecy in it, or the proclamation of any new doctrine or belief, caught their ear at once. More than anything else, anyone putting himself forward as the Messiah produced the utmost excitement among them, for they passionately cherished messianic hopes, and were at the time severely hurting under the foreign domination. In relation to the rest of the community, they were similar to our clergy and leading religious laymen, and probably formed about the same proportion of the population, and exercised at least as great an influence as these do among us. It has been estimated that they may have numbered about 6,000. They were thought of as the best people in the country, the caretakers of respectability and religion. The people looked up to them as those who had the right to judge and determine in all religious matters. They cannot be accused of having neglected Jesus. They turned their earnest attention to him from the beginning. They followed him step by step. They discussed his doctrines and his claims and made up their minds. Their decision was unfavorable to the cause of Christ, and they followed it up with action, never slacking in their activity for even an hour. Perhaps the most solemn and appalling circumstance in the whole tragedy of the life of Christ was that the men who rejected, hunted down, and murdered him were those regarded as the best in the nation, its teachers and examples, the zealous protectors of the Bible, and the traditions of the past. These men who were eagerly waiting for the Messiah judged Jesus, as they believed, according to the scriptures, and thought they were obeying the dictates of conscience and doing God's service when they treated him as they did. There cannot fail sometimes to sweep across the mind of a reader of the Gospels a strong feeling of pity for them, and a kind of sympathy with them. Jesus was so unlike the Messiah whom they were looking for, and whom their fathers had taught them to expect. He so completely counteracted their prejudices and beliefs, 
and he dishonored so many things that they had been taught to regard as sacred. They can certainly be pitied. There was never a crime like their crime, and there was never a punishment like their punishment. There is the same sadness about the fate of those who are thrown upon any great crisis of the world's history, and, not understanding the signs of the times, make fatal mistakes, just as they did. For example, who at the Reformation were unable to go forth and join the movement of God. What was their basic situation? It was that they were so blinded with sin that they could not recognize the light. Their views of the Messiah had been distorted by centuries of worldliness and lack of godliness of which they were the like-minded heirs. They thought Jesus was a sinner because he did not conform to the ordinances that they and their fathers had irreverently added to those of God's word, and because their concept of a good man, which he did not fit, was completely false. Jesus supplied them with enough evidence of who he was, but they didn't have eyes to see it. There is something at the bottom of honest and true hearts that, no matter how long and deeply it may have been buried under prejudice and sin, leaps up with joy and a desire to embrace what is true, what is holy, and what is pure and great when it draws near. But nothing of the kind was found in these people. Their hearts were withered, hardened, and dead. They brought their established rules and arbitrary standards to judge him by, and they were never shaken by his greatness from the fatal attitude of denunciation. He brought truth near them, but they did not have the truth-loving ear to recognize the sound. He brought the whitest purity near them, such purity that archangels would have veiled their faces at, but they were not affected. He brought near them the very face of mercy and heavenly love, but their dim eyes made no response. We may, indeed, pity the conduct of such people as a sad misfortune, but it is better to fear and tremble at it as astounding sin. The more utterly wicked people become, the more inevitable it is that they will sin. The more immense the accumulation of a nation's sin becomes, as it rolls down through the centuries, the more inevitable does some terrible national transgression become. When the inevitable takes place, it is not an object for pity only, but also for holy and jealous wrath. One thing about Jesus that stirred up their opposition to him from the beginning was the humbleness of his origin. They were impressed with the ordinary bias toward the rich and the educated, and they could not recognize the nobility of the soul apart from the circumstances of position and culture. Jesus was a son of the people. He had been a carpenter. They believed he had been born in coarse and wicked Galilee. He had not passed through the schools of Jerusalem, and he had not drunk from the acknowledged wells of wisdom there. They thought that a prophet, and above all the Messiah, would have been born in Judea, reared at Jerusalem in the center of culture and religion, and allied with all that was distinguished and influential in the nation. 
For the same reason, they were offended with the followers he chose and the company he kept. His chosen disciples were not selected from among themselves, the wise and high-born, but were uneducated laymen and poor fishermen. One of them was even a publican, a tax collector. Probably nothing that Jesus did gave greater offense than the choice of Matthew, the tax collector, to be an apostle. The tax collectors, as servants of the foreign power, were hated for their trade, their extortions, and their character by all who were patriotic and respectable. How could Jesus hope that respectable and educated men would enter a circle such as that which he had formed around himself? Besides, he mingled freely with the lowest class of the population, with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners. In Christian times, we have learned to love Jesus for this more than anything else. We easily see that if he really was the Savior from sin, he could not have been found in more appropriate company than among those who needed salvation most. We know now how he could believe that many of the lost were more the victims of circumstances than sinners by choice, and that if he drew the magnet across the top of the rubbish, it would attract to itself many pieces of precious metal. The purest-minded and highest-born people have since learned to follow his footsteps down into the regions of filth and sin to seek and save the lost. But until Jesus came, that idea was largely foreign to humanity. The majority of sinners outside the limits of respectability were despised and hated as the enemies of society and no efforts were made to save them. On the contrary, all who aimed at religious distinction avoided their very touch as defilement. Simon the Pharisee, when he was entertaining Jesus, never doubted that if Jesus had been a prophet and had known who the woman was who was touching him, he would have driven her away. Luke seven thirty-six to 50 That was the sentiment of the time. Yet when Jesus brought the new sentiment into the world and showed them the divine face of mercy, they should have recognized it. If their hearts had not been completely hard and cruel, they would have jumped up to welcome this revelation of a more heavenly humanity. The light of sinners forsaking their evil ways, of wicked women sobbing for their lost lives, and of extortioners like Zacchaeus becoming sincere and generous, should have delighted them. But it did not, and they only hated Jesus for his compassion, calling him a friend of publicans and sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen. A third and very serious reason for their opposition was that he did not himself practice nor encourage his disciples to practice many ritual observances, such as ceremonial washing of the hands before meals, and so forth, which were then considered the marks of a saintly man. It has been already explained how these practices arose. They had been invented in an earnest but mechanical age in order to emphasize the distinctiveness of Jewish character and to keep up the separation of the Jews from other nations. The original intention was good, but the end result was deplorable. 
It was soon forgotten that they were merely human inventions. They were supposed to be binding by divine sanction, but God did not approve of these human inventions. They increased until they regulated every hour of the day and every action of life. They were made the substitutes for real piety and morality by the majority. They were an intolerable burden to tender consciences, for it was hardly possible to move a step or lift a finger without the danger of sinning against one or another of them. However, no one doubted their authority, and the careful observance of them was reputed to be the badge of a godly life. Jesus regarded them as the great evil of the time. He therefore neglected them and encouraged others to do so. Not, however, without at the same time leading the people back to the great principles of judgment, mercy, and faith. Matthew 23:23, And making them feel the majesty of the conscience and the depth and spirituality of the law. The result was that he was looked upon as an ungodly man and a deceiver of the people. It was especially in regard to the Sabbath that this difference between him and the religious teachers came out. Their inventions of restrictions and arbitrary rules in this area had run into the most pompous extravagance until they had changed the day of rest, joy, and blessing into an intolerable burden. Jesus was in the habit of performing his cures on the Sabbath. They thought such work was a breach of the command. Jesus exposed the wrongness of their objections again and again by explaining the nature of the institution itself as made for man. Mark 2:27. By reference to the practice of ancient saints. Matthew 12:3-5 and even by the analogy of some of their own practices on the holy day, Matthew 12:11. However, they were not convinced, and since he continued his practice in spite of their objections, this remained a continued and bitter reason for their hatred. Since they arrived at these conclusions on such improper reasoning, it will be easily understood that they were utterly unwilling to listen to him when he put forth his higher claims, when he announced himself as the Messiah, professed to forgive sins, and provided indications of his high relation to God. Having concluded that he was an impostor and deceiver, they regarded such assertions as hideous blasphemies, and they could not help wanting to stop the mouth that uttered them. It might cause surprise that they were not convinced by his miracles. If Jesus really performed the numerous and amazing miracles that are recorded of him, how could they resist such evidence of his divine mission? The debate that was held with the authorities by the tough reasoner whom Jesus cured of blindness, and whose case is recorded in the ninth chapter of John, shows how severely they might sometimes have been pressured with such reasoning. However, they had satisfied themselves with a defiant reply to it. It is to be remembered that among the Jews, miracles had never been looked upon as conclusive proof of a divine mission. They could have been worked by false as well as true prophets. They could be traceable to diabolical, 
instead of divine power. Whether they were so or not was to be determined by other factors. Based upon these factors, they had concluded that Jesus had not been sent from God, so they attributed his miracles to an alliance with the powers of darkness. Jesus met this blasphemous conclusion with the utmost force of holy indignation and conclusive argument. But it is easy to see that it was a position in which minds like those of his opponents might entrench themselves with a sense of much security. Matthew 12:24-28. They had formed their adverse judgment of him very early, and they never changed it. Even during his first year in Judea, they had pretty well decided against him. When the news of his success in Galilee spread, they were filled with dismay, and they sent representatives from Jerusalem to work in agreement with their local adherents in opposing him. Even during his year of joy, he clashed with them again and again. At first, Jesus treated them with consideration and appealed to their reason and heart. Soon, though, he saw that this was hopeless, and he accepted their opposition as inevitable. He exposed the hollowness of their pretensions to his audiences and warned his disciples against them. Meanwhile, they did everything to poison the public mind against him. They succeeded only too well. When the tide of his popularity began to recede at the end of the year, they pressed their advantage, assailing him more and more boldly. They even soon succeeded in arousing the cold minds of the Sadducees and Herodians against him, no doubt by persuading them that he was promoting a popular revolt that would endanger the throne of their master Herod, who reigned over Galilee. That mean and characterless ruler himself also became his persecutor. Herod had other reasons to fear him, besides those suggested by his attendants. About this very time, Herod had murdered John the Baptist. It was one of the lowest and most corrupt crimes recorded in history. It was a dreadful example of the way in which sin leads to sin and of the malicious perseverance that a wicked woman will embrace to enact her revenge. Soon after it was committed, Herod's attendants went to tell him of the supposed political plans of Jesus. When he heard of the new prophet, an awful thought went through his guilty conscience. It is John the Baptist, he said, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Mark 6, 16. Still, Herod wanted to see Jesus, his curiosity getting the better of his fear. Luke 9, 9. It was the desire of the lion to see the lamb. Jesus never responded to Herod's invitation, and it just might have been because of this that Herod was even more willing to listen to the suggestion of his attendants that he should arrest him as a dangerous person. Soon after this, Herod was seeking to kill Jesus. Luke 13:31. Jesus had to keep out of Herod's way, and no doubt this helped along with more important things, to change the character of his life in Galilee during the last six months of his stay there.
It had seemed for a time as if his hold on the mind and the heart of the common people might become so strong as to result in an irresistible national acceptance. Many movements, frowned upon at first by authorities and dignitaries, have risen to take possession of the upper classes and carry the centers of influence by committing themselves to the lower classes and securing their enthusiastic acknowledgement. There is a certain point of national consent at which any movement that reaches it becomes like a flood that no amount of animosity or official enmity can successfully oppose. Jesus gave himself to the common people of Galilee, and in return they gave him their love and admiration. Instead of hating him like the Pharisees and scribes, and calling him a glutton and a wine-bibber, Matthew 11:19, they believed that he was a prophet. They compared him to the very greatest figures of the past, and many, as they were more struck with the heavenly or with the tender side of his teaching, said he was Isaiah or Jeremiah, risen from the dead, Matthew 16:13 to 14 it was a common idea of the time that the coming of the Messiah was to be preceded by the rising again of some prophet. The prophet most commonly considered was Elijah. Accordingly, some took Jesus for Elijah. However, they only thought that he was a forerunner of the Messiah, not the actual Messiah. He was not at all like their idea of the coming deliverer which was of the most absolute physical kind. Indeed, every once in a while after he had performed some unusually remarkable miracle, there might be raised a single voice or a few voices suggesting that Jesus might be the Messiah. However, as wonderful as his deeds and his words were, the entire aspect of his life was so unlike their preconceptions that the truth failed to suggest itself forcibly and universally to their minds. At last, however, the decisive hour seemed to have arrived. That great turning point has already been alluded to, the end of the twelve months in Galilee. Jesus had heard of John the Baptist's death, and he immediately went away into a desert place with his disciples to grieve and talk over the tragic event. He sailed to the eastern side of the lake and landing on the grassy plain of Bethsaida, went up to a hill with the twelve. Soon, though, an immense multitude gathered at the foot of the hill to hear and see him. They had found out where he was, and they gathered to him from all around. Always ready to sacrifice himself for others, Jesus descended to address and heal them. He continued to speak as the evening arrived. Then, moved with much compassion for the helpless multitude, he performed the wonderful miracle of feeding the five thousand. Mark six thirty-five to 46 Its effect was overwhelming. The people became immediately convinced that this was none other than the Messiah, and having only one idea of what this meant, they attempted to take him by force and make him a king. John six fourteen to 15 That is, they tried to force him to become the leader of a messianic revolt by which they might seize the throne from Caesar and the princes he had set up 
over the different provinces. It seemed to be the crowning hour of success, but to Jesus himself, it was an hour of sad and bitter shame. This was all that his year's work had come to. This was the idea they had of him. They wanted to determine the course of his future action, instead of humbly asking what he wanted to do. He accepted it as the decisive indication of the effect of his work in Galilee. He saw how shallow its results were. Galilee had judged itself unworthy of being the center from which his kingdom might extend itself to the rest of the land. He fled from their worldly desires, and the very next day, meeting them again at Capernaum, he told them how much they had been mistaken in him. They were looking for a physical king who would give them idleness and plenty, mountains of loaves, rivers of milk, and every comfort without labor. What Jesus had to give was the bread of eternal life. John six thirty-five. His teaching was like a stream of cold water directed upon the fiery enthusiasm of the crowd. From that hour, his cause in Galilee was doomed. Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. John six sixty six. It was what he intended. It was he who struck the fatal blow at his popularity. He resolved to devote himself from then on to the few who really understood him and were capable of being the supporters of a spiritual undertaking. THE CHANGED ASPECT OF HIS MINISTRY Although the people of Galilee in general had shown themselves unworthy of him, there was a considerable remnant that proved true. At the center of it were the apostles, but there were also others, probably numbering several hundred. These now became the objects of his special care. He had saved them as brands plucked from the burning. Zechariah 3.2, when Galilee as a whole deserted him. It must have been a time of crucial trial for the apostles. Their views were to a large extent those of the general public. They also expected a Messiah of worldly splendor. They had indeed learned to include deeper and more spiritual elements in their concept. But along with these, it still contained the traditional and earthly ones. It must have been a painful mystery to them that Jesus would so long delay the assumption of the crown. John the Baptist's death must have been a terrible shock to the disciples. If Jesus was the mighty one, how could he allow his friend to come to such an end? Still, they held on to him. They showed what it was that kept them by their answer to him when, after the dispersion that followed the discourse at Capernaum, he asked them the sad question, Will ye also go away? They replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John six sixty seven to 68 Their opinions were not clear. They were in a haze of confusion, but they knew that from him they were getting eternal life. This held them close to him and made them willing to wait until he would make things clear. 
During the last six months he spent in Galilee, he abandoned much of his previous work of preaching and working miracles, and he devoted himself to the instruction of these followers. He made long journeys with them to the most distant parts of the province, avoiding publicity as much as possible. We find him at Tyre and Sidon, far to the northwest, at Caesarea Philippi, on the far northeast, and in Decapolis, to the south and east of the lake. These journeys, or flights, were due partly to the bitter opposition of the Pharisees, and partly to fear of Herod, but were mainly due to the desire to be alone with his disciples. The precious result of the journeys was seen in an incident that happened at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked his disciples what the popular views about himself were, and they told him the various theories that were flying about, that he was a prophet, that he was Elijah, that he was John the Baptist, and so on. But whom say ye that I am? he asked. Peter answered for them all, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 13-16 This was the deliberate and decisive conviction by which they were determined to abide, whatever might come. Jesus received the confession with great joy, and at once recognized the nucleus of the future church, the church that was to be built on the truth to which they had given expression in those who had made it. This realization only prepared them for a new trial of faith. From that time, we are told, Jesus began to inform them of his approaching suffering and death. Matthew 16:21. This now stood out clearly in his own mind as the only issue of his career to be looked for. He had hinted as much to them before, but with that delicate and loving consideration that always adapted his teaching to their capacity, he did not refer to it often. Now, however, they were in some degree able to bear it, and as it was inevitable and near at hand, he kept insisting on it constantly. They themselves say that they did not in the least understand him. Luke 18.34 in common with all their countrymen, they expected a Messiah who would sit on the throne of David and whose reign would never end. They believed that Jesus was this Messiah, and they could not understand at all that instead of reigning, he would be killed upon his arrival in Jerusalem. They listened to him and discussed his words among themselves but they regarded the apparent meaning of the words as a wild impossibility. They thought he was only using one of the parables of which he was so fond, his real meaning being that the present lowly form of his work was to die and disappear, and his cause rise, as it were, out of the grave in a glorious and triumphant manner. He attempted to make things clear for them, going more and more specifically into the details of his approaching suffering, but their minds could not accept the truth. How completely even the best of them failed to do so is shown by the frequent disagreements among them at this period, 
as to which of them would be the greatest in the approaching kingdom. Mark 9.33-34 And also by the request of Salome for her sons that they would sit the one on the right and the other on the left hand in his kingdom. Matthew 20.20-24 20, When they left Galilee and went up toward Jerusalem, it was with the conviction that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Luke 19.11 That is, they thought that Jesus, on arriving in the capital, would throw off the guise of humiliation he had worn up until then, and overcoming all opposition by some show of his concealed glory, would take his place on the throne of his fathers. What were the thoughts and feelings of Jesus himself during this year? It was a year of severe trial for him. Now, for the first time, the deep lines of care and pain could be seen upon his face. During the twelve months of successful work in Galilee, he was supported with the joy of sustained achievement. But now he became, in the truest sense, the man of sorrows. Isaiah 53, 3. His rejection by Galilee was behind him. The sorrow that he felt at seeing the ground on which he had bestowed so much labor turning out barren is to be measured only by the greatness of his love to the souls he sought to save, along with the depth of his obedience and devotion to the work. In front of him was his rejection at Jerusalem. That was now certain. He rose up and stood out constantly and unmistakably meeting his eyes as often as he turned them to the future. It absorbed his thoughts. It was a dreadful expectation. And now that it was near, it sometimes shook his soul with a conflict of feelings that we hardly dare to even try to imagine. Jesus was very much in prayer. This had been his delight and strength all along. In his busiest period, when he was often so tired with the labors of the day that at the approach of evening, when he was ready to fling himself down in utter fatigue, he would nevertheless escape away from the crowds and his disciples to the mountaintop and spend the whole night in solitary communion with his father. He never took any important step without such a night. Now, though, he was alone far more often than ever before setting forth his case to his God with strong crying and tears. His prayers received a wonderful answer in the Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1-9. That glorious scene took place in the middle of the year of opposition, just before he left Galilee and set forth on the journey of doom. It was intended partly for the sake of the three disciples who accompanied him to the mountaintop, in order to strengthen their faith and prepare them to strengthen their brethren. But it was intended primarily for himself. It was a great gift from his father, an acknowledgment of his faithfulness up to this point, and a preparation for what lay before him. He conversed with his great predecessors, Moses and Elijah, who could thoroughly relate to him and whose work his death was to fulfill about the death he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Immediately after this event, 
Jesus left Galilee and went south. He spent six months on his way to Jerusalem. It was part of his mission to preach the message of the kingdom over the whole land. And he did so. He sent seventy of his disciples on before him to prepare the villages and towns to receive him. Luke 10, 1-17 In this new field, the same demonstrations that Galilee had witnessed during the first months of his labors there showed themselves. The multitudes following him, the wonderful cures, and so forth. We do not have adequate records of this period of his life to enable us to follow him step by step. We find him on the borders of Samaria, in Perea, on the banks of the Jordan River, in Bethany, and in the village of Ephraim. But Jerusalem was his goal. His face was set like a flint toward it. Isaiah 50, verse 7. Sometimes he was so absorbed in the anticipation of what was to happen to him there that his disciples, following his swift, silent figure along the highway, were amazed and afraid. Now and then, indeed, he would relax for a little while, as when he was blessing the little children or visiting the home of his friends at Bethany. But his mood at this time was more stern, absorbed, and highly strung than ever before. His contests with his enemies were sharper, and the conditions that he imposed on those who offered to be his disciples were more stringent. Everything indicated that the end was drawing near. Jesus was in the grip of his grand purpose of atoning for the sins of the world, and his soul was distressed until it would be accomplished. Luke 12:50. The catastrophe drew near quickly. Jesus made two brief visits to Jerusalem during his last six months before the final visit. On both occasions, the opposition of the authorities assumed the most menacing form. They tried to arrest him on the first occasion, John 7:32, And they took up stones to stone him on the second, John 8:59 and 10:31. They had already issued a decree that anyone acknowledging Jesus to be the Messiah should be excommunicated, John 9:22. However, it was the excitement produced in the popular mind by the raising of Lazarus at the very gates of the ecclesiastical citadel that finally convinced the authorities that they could not be content with anything less than his death. And they agreed on this in council. John 11, 46-54 This took place only a month or two before the end came, and for a time it drove Jesus from the neighborhood of Jerusalem. But he left only until the hour came that his father had appointed for him.